Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day, welcome aboard the Starship Zero G, science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1330. Our title is 007.2G and our podcast title is Sean Pottery. Part 2. I'm Rob Jan, flying solo today. Our co-host Megan McHugh is leading an away team back on poor old plague-stricken Earth. Now, when Scottish actor Sir Thomas Sean Connery died last year in 2020, on the 31st of October, I discovered, looking through the long list of movies that he appeared in during his career, that he had accumulated considerable genre credits in his 90-odd years which is to say movies ranging across science fiction, fantasy and historical genres, which I decided were worth looking at in the lens of the Connery connection, or if you like, collection. So as tricky as it sometimes can be to separate science fiction and fantasy, and sometimes historical genres as well, back on November the 9th, in 2020, we began with Sean Connery's fantasy films in Zero-G episode 1314, which sounds like a historical date all in itself, perhaps part of the Highlander movie series. In it, we separated Connery's fantasy work into a block that featured Arthurian films, that is, works related to King Arthur, or the Matter of Britain, as it's often referred to, though, strictly speaking, the Arthurian cycle is simply the largest grouping in that body of work, and not the sole one. We looked at the movie Dragonheart that sparked a multi-film franchise where Connery played the voice of the amazing CGI dragon Draco. And after a stopover on the TV special Without the Grail, we went adventuring with Connery playing father to Harrison Ford's Indiana Jones in that exhilaratingly memorable archaeological adventure classic The Last Crusade, galloping up finally to Connery's turn as King Arthur himself opposite Richard Gere's Sir Lancelot in the movie First Night. We also looked at the leprechaun-y but somewhat charming Darby O'Gill and the Little People, a Disney movie, and swung past Tarzan's Greatest Adventure for a glimpse of one of Connery's minor turns as a villain. And then we dropped through a space-time portal into the religious fantasy film Time Bandits, where Connery played King Agamemnon and more prosaically a modern-day fireman which just left room for a look at another TV special where Connery played a quite convincing Macbeth. It's the witches and the prophecies that make it fantasy. And also that swashbuckling exploration of immortality and head-lopping through the ages, Highlander, which of course spawned another multimedia franchise. Connery's third, along with James Bond and the Dragonheart series. And he was in on the ground floor of all of those ones. We briefly mentioned Highlander 2, The Quickening, and I want to return to that again today, 
kind of like a dog going back to its own vomit. Uh, as I've seen one of several director's cuts, which is a rather different beastie to the hideous original theatrical release. Well, turning now to Connery's science fiction films, and maybe we should keep turning past Zardos. <laughs> it's 1974. The world slowly trundles out of an oil crisis, and President Tricky Dicky resigns after Watergate. The Terracotta Army is discovered in China, and the city of Darwin is ravaged by Cyclone Tracy. On Aussie screens, it's a big year for Ozploitation, with Peter Weir's autodystopia The Cars at Eight Paris, Stone, and Barry McKenzie holds his own. Worldwide, the disaster movie genre was at its peak, with Earthquake, The Towering Inferno, and Airport 1975 shaking and stirring audiences. Director Sidney Lumet is scoring box office success with an adaptation of Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express, which starred Albert Finney as Hercule Poirot, uh, Lauren Bacall, Ingrid Bergman, John Gielgud, Vanessa Redgrave, Michael York, Jacqueline Bisset and Anthony Perkins. Now, in 1974, all but one of his 007 James Bond movies had run through the projector. And in the career lull, John Borman was able to come along and relatively inexpensively scoop up Sean Connery to star in this surreal science fiction, utopian, dystopian movie, Zardos. (laughs) Borman, of course, would later become perhaps best known for his own worthy contribution to the Arthurian cycle with his iconic 1981 movie Excalibur. And his obsession with Arthurian motifs is once again on show in Zardos in several places, perhaps most notably when Connery's character thrusts a gun from a mound of grain, rather like the Lady of the Lake brandishing Excalibur. And you should also check out the final scene of Borman's other famous movie, Deliverance, for yet another Lady of the Lake drop. And speaking of which, it was Deliverance's popular success that juiced up Borman's stocks so he could get to play around with Zardos. On the rebound from not adapting The Lord of the Rings, which proved to be too much for him, John Borman had a go at imagining a surreal future version of The Wizard of Oz. Yes, the title is a spoiler for Zardos. In an apocalyptic world around 2293, a sophisticated but enervated ruling class of Eternals lived a fading and languid life behind a force shield barrier, while outside in the Arthurian trope wastelands, their selected minions keep a lethal population-controlling lid on the ragtag survivors, watched over by a hovering giant stone head, literally a godhead, the Zardos of the title. And that exchanges guns and presumably ammunition for harvested grain and other primary produce tribute given back by the exterminators. That is, it does until one of the exterminators stows away in Zardos and ends up in the utopian vortex. And as you probably guess, eventually puts an end to it because it's Sean Connery playing Zed the Exterminator and he's all primal patriarchal alpha male in this heroically quirky offering. He's got a bandit moustache, a ponytail to match his horses, thigh-high leather boots in place of cowboy chaps, 
crossed ammunition bandoliers and a hairy muscular body on show through a costume that is the bloke equivalent of what Lilu Dallas Multipass wore in The Fifth Element or that Vampirella more or less sported in the comic books and endless convention cosplay. The film is nowhere near big enough, while at the same time remarkably seeming to be way too long, to contain all of the often intriguing but messily munged together ideas of dissipated futurism that it aspires to portray, but it fails to coalesce coherently through the narrative, even if it does also boast the probably merrily confused but game talents of the ever-amusing John Alderton and the formidable Charlotte Rampling plus a background cast of Irish location non-actors who look the part, while also curiously managing to give the impression that they're part of some introductory improv workshop. Connery himself visibly but stalwartly works hard to make his character at least work, which adds to the so bad it's good cult appeal of the finished piece. There's quite a bit of play with some at times effective in-camera visuals, beyond the uh, startling cozies, it all seems a bit like an extended episode of the British spy-fi series, The Avengers, if it had been set in the prisoners' bizarre Welsh village. Now, Zardos belongs to a particular school of somewhat surreal movies that blended the space age and the swinging 60s and eye-searing 70s. It's full of questionable ideas, dodgy dialogue and now rather alarming 1970s socio-political and other tropes. It's a new wave science fiction odds and sods box to tick off for genre film buffs, along with, for another example, director Robert Fuerst's 1973, The Final Program, which was more or less adapted from new wave guru Michael Moorcock's story of the same name. You have been warned. Connery's actorial star rose a bit later in the mid-1970s as he appeared in some of what I still think are some of his best films ever, when he was in the note perfectly poignant Robin and Marion movie, and the ripping Rudyard Kipling-derived boy's own adventure, The Man Who Would Be King, and The Wind and the Lion, the latter being a, a desert epic that's a big-budget coda to Hollywood's long-term fascination with romanticised Orientalism. Zardos actually has a 21st century Blu-ray release, by the way, which is a thing of wonder. <laughs> As for the soundtrack, well... Uh, there's a lot of early music in it. Apparently, these sorts of things were considered cutting-edge futurism. But like many another future dystopia, for example, A Clockwork Orange, the director turned to Beethoven for musical inspiration. In this case, the Symphony Number no. 7 in A, Opus 92, the second movement by Ludwig van Beethoven. In this particular Interpretation comes from the London Symphony Orchestra and Joseph Cripps from Beethoven, the Complete Symphony Collection. This is Peter Woodward. I play the Technomage Galen in Babylon 5 and Crusade. And you are listening to Zero G. Who do you serve and who do you trust? There we go. Music from the soundtrack of Zardos. The Symphony Number no. 7 in A, Opus 92, the second movement by Ludwig von Beethoven here from the Beethoven The Complete Symphony Collection featuring the London Symphony Orchestra and Joseph Cripps. Now, 
I mentioned the tidal wave of 1970s disaster movies earlier on in today's episode, which had more or less ebbed by the time Sean Connery's next major science fiction film impacted on the Earth's surface. Now, it's Ronald Neem's movie, Meteor, which dropped in 1979. And Neem was an old-school British director who had one disaster movie already to his credit, the star-studded Poseidon Adventure, set on an ocean liner that capsizes after being hit by the perfect wave. Now, Meteor is what it says on the tin, although you might quite rightly point out that when rocks from space hit the ground, they're deemed meteorites. Now, the plot is simple. A five-mile-wide fragment of the asteroid Orpheus is punched out of the asteroid belt. Where are the belter lauder rock miners when you really need them from the expanse? Now, as luck would have it, and there'd be no film otherwise, this mighty large cosmic bullet has Earth's name on it. Enter Sean Connery as Dr. Paul Bradley, a crusty and disillusioned former NASA scientist whose top-secret space-guarding orbital platform project was co-opted by the US military. And its meteor-smashing nuclear missiles have been pointed at the Soviet Union instead of outwards. Who'd have thunk? Sorry about that, old bean, but wait! We can realign it to face outer space again and take that, you menacing, dirty rock. Now, in spite of the speed of the falling rock, Meteor is a bit of a plodding watch, not helped by comparisons with more intelligently satisfying entries in that genre, like Deep Impact, or merely more fast-paced ones, looking at you, Armageddon, you big dumb rock. Now, while they're working against the clock and US-Soviet Cold War rivalry, advanced splinters of Orpheus arrive to wreak spectacular havoc. Because, after all, this movie is about stopping the big main meteor from wiping out Earth, so you've got to have some some wee little catastrophes preceding it, just so that it qualifies as a, a disaster movie. The usual human interest story in The Victims is barely sketched in, and correspondingly it's less engaging than in comparable disaster movies of the time. Henry Fonda makes a believable US president and Brian Keith has bearish fun as a mostly non-English speaking stereotype of a Russian boffin, along with Natalie Wood, who actually spoke Russian because of her heritage, uh, serving as his translator and as a, a vague romantic interest for Connery, whose character suffered the same fate as many of his other roles, that of being divorced or estranged from his on-screen wife. It was never enough in most movies to face extinction-level events. You also had to overcome a family breakup as well. Chaos is created by the splinter impacts, which provides the opportunity for Sean to engage in some physical heroics as a shattered New York River pours mud into an underground control complex. (laughs) Tough shoot. Some reaction shots that focus on Connery's presumably awestruck eyes are comically held too long. And genre movie buffs may notice B-movie queen Sybil Danning as a skier struck down by styrofoam snow boulders in an avalanche. And there's also Star Trek IV's whale-saving scientist who was played by Bibi Besh. And she's Paul Bradley's aforementioned estranged wife who literally phones her performance in during this movie. 
Now, Connery plays Bradley as a scientist who does not suffer mortal fools at all, especially in this world-threatening extremist, and something of a default setting for many similar science and roles that Connery played, as well as his other characters too. I hadn't thought of it until just now, but Martin Landau plays a hawkish American general who's initially dismissive of the danger from above. And Martin Landau, of course, had his own separate issues with rocks in space in the Jerry Anderson television series Space 1999. Now, the thing I most strongly remember about Meteor is one of Connery's lines. As Bradley is leaving a less than satisfactory meeting with the top brass, where he's been given far too much to do, He snaps, Why don't you stick a broom up my arse? I can sweep the carpet on the way out. By the way, the film ponderously notes that it was inspired by a 1967 Massachusetts Institute of Technology report, Project Icarus, and later schools of thought questioned the practicality and effectiveness of using nuclear weapons to try and divert or smash an incoming asteroid. Now, I recall seeing Meteor in the cinema back in 1979, and its special effects did not compare favourably with then contemporary space epics like The Black Hole or Alien and Star Trek The Motion Picture. Its uh, Lawrence Rosenthal soundtrack, rather more memorable, even if the composer relies on some cliched nationalistic riffs to differentiate the US and Soviet missile platforms, which at least were rather nicely built for model work. All right, here's the main title theme to Meteor, which incorporates the same shiversome blaster beam musical instrument that was used so evocatively to give otherworldly voice to the behemoth starship Vija in Star Trek The Motion Picture. Now, the blaster beam instrument is worth Googling in itself, and was and is basically a very long metal beam with guitar strings that can be struck and plucked and played with, well, practically anything. It has become associated with science fiction films in much the same way as the theremin is. Meteor, the main title by Lawrence Rosenthal. Uh, Hi, this is Jim Beaver. I play Bobby Singer on the TV series Supernatural, and you're listening to 3RRRFM0G, you idiots. And that was the main title theme from the movie Meteor by Lawrence Rosenthal, who also gave us musical magic for television shows like Fantasy Island and the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, as well as movies like Clash of the Titans. Looking at Sean Connery's science fiction films here today on Zero G, in a bit of a tribute to the actor and genre movies. In the same year that Connery played a legendary king in Terry Gilliam's time-travelling pastiche Time Bandits, he rocketed into space again in the film Outland. American director Peter Hyams is probably best known for taking on the impossible task of sequelising Stanley Kubrick's genre-defining masterpiece 2001, A Space Odyssey. Hyams wisely emphasised more conventional human interest to contrast with the solar system-altering scale of Arthur C. Clarke's science fiction story. Perhaps the less said the better about Hyams' NASA-faking a manned planetary landing film Capricorn 1, since it's become a bit of a go-to for moon-landing conspiracy fantasists. Hyams has another Connery film to his credit too, 1988's The Presidio. 
Now, Outland is not to be confused with the similarly titled and highly entertaining Australian television comedy about science fiction fans, Outland. So it's a straightforward space western that unashamedly owes much of its plot to the 1952 planet-bound genre definer High Noon. And Sean Connery is cast in the role of the Marshal, who must nerve-wrackingly await the arrival in town of hired guns, whose job it is to murder him for interfering in business that he shouldn't have ought to have. Of course, it's a far future, and the mining town is on Jupiter's moon Io, which Hyams would later revisit to convert into a second star for our solar system in the year we made contact. Now, Marshal William T. O'Neill has decided to take his stand against the corrupt operators who run the Earth's many off-world mining colonies. He's newly arrived on I.O., and O'Neill makes actual arrests instead of just accepting the customary payoff to look the other way when he detects a lethal trade in productivity-enhancing drugs. Aided by the colony's curmudgeonly doctor, played by an even more off-world weary Francis Sternhagen, O'Neill awaits and eventually deals with a pair of mercenary assassins who seem rather less well-prepared to deal with I.O.'s treacherous 1-6 gravity environment than the Marshal is. A QA well-staged Western running gunfight through the colony's industrial bowels, which provides opportunity for lots of exploding heads in appropriately ripped open spacesuits. Yes, the old trope and somewhat inaccurate idea of explosive decompression makes its gory return in Outland. Speaking of high noon, the tension is effectively racked up in Outland by ever-present digital clocks, implacably counting down the arrival of the space shuttle with its hired guns. (laughs) And once again, Connery's character is separated from his wife and family, and he's entirely believable as the reluctant career cruiser who decides it's time he actually stepped up to earn his pay. Outland's production design is another star of the film, as it meticulously realises the grimy, claustrophobic interiors of the heavy industry space colony. In fact, you could easily believe that the Con-Am operation was just another arm of Ridley Scott's deadly Aliens Universe mainstay, the Whalen yutani Company. And there's even several rooms in the Con-Am base that remind me very much of similar confined spaces aboard the starship Nostromo from Alien. All right, now, here's Sean Connery's key speech from Outland, delivered to Francis Sternhagen as they sit rather dejectedly and almost without hope in the Recreation Centre's squash court. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Sean Connery's speech to Francis Sternhagen, delivered in a space squash court in the space colony in Peter Hyams' movie Outland. Connery hit another high point in his career once again in a period film playing the bookish medieval monk turned detective in the 1986 adaptation of Umberto Eco's The Name of the Rose. Having returned to the Bond franchise to Never Say Never Again back in 1983, Connery also returned to another developing movie universe for 1991's Highlander 2, The Quickening. Now, 
Pretty much everything about Russell McKay's sequel to his 1986 cult fantasy hit Highlander is messy and muddled, which is why I mentioned it in our previous exploration of Connery's fantasy genre hits. I'm not the only one to wonder what the hell it was all about. The box office flop and highly meddled with theatrical release actually took an abrupt science fictional turn. In that, the explanation of the origin of the head-lopping immortals was given as being off-Earth on an alien world known as Zeist. It was also set in the future, well, the then-future, with a now-aged Connor MacLeod played with charming befuddlement by Christopher Lambert, being rich and powerful enough to co-create a planet-girding force shield to protect the world from the sun's radiation after the depletion of the ozone layer. Heck, he'd fit right at home on Snowpiercer. McLeod, who gets a new lease on life, also reconnects with Ramirez, character played by Sean Connery in the original movie, and he's McLeod's old but previously beheaded mentor, killed in medieval times but now returned shh, to kind of magic to once again guide him in a rather amusingly anachronistic extended cameo. Look, there was a, an economic collapse in Argentina where Highlander 2 was filmed and it was just one of the many problems that plagued the production and studio interference with the final cut helped nail down Highlander 2's well-deserved reputation as one of the most scatterbrained and disappointing sequels to a good movie ever made. Now, years later, we've got the extended Blu-ray Renegade version slash special edition, a.k.a. Director's Cut, whatever the heck it is, which shifts the origins of the Immortals back in time to a lost previous civilization on Earth. Now, while still not the greatest possible movie, Highlander 2 at least now makes a kind of magic sense in context of the original story, and more importantly, almost hangs together as a complete story in itself. Connery is even more tongue-in-cheek as his character is reincarnated in future Scotland and has to make his way across the modern world to reunite with Connor MacLeod. Yes, he gets killed once again, the sacrifice of the mentor trope. It's a crazy mad scheme with Amazing Grace playing in the background while Connery single-handedly supports a giant, inexplicably set-up ventilation fan, Shades of Galaxy Quest, that's coming down to cut the heads off of McLeod and other characters. What a guy giving his all so the main hero can crack on with saving the world. Sadly, across both versions of the film, Michael Ironside is stuck in the role of a scenery-chewing General Zod, Katana, alternately arrived from off-world or the past to avenge himself upon the Highlander. He's nowhere near the off-kilter but creepy primal force that Clancy Brown's Kurgan was in the first movie. Now, you wouldn't think that the sequel's original failure would inspire an extended franchise, but there was enough cachet in the original movie's cult success that resonated with audiences to result in several more Highlander movies and a couple of live-action television shows, including some animated movies as well and other spin-offs. There can be only one? Well, it's not bloody likely. Now, Queen's original songs on the soundtrack of Highlander 1 are justly famous, perhaps the most 
haunting being a meditation on the poignant nature of an immortal watching mortal companions growing old and dying while they live on themselves. But I've played Who Wants to Live Forever before, and probably will play it again someday. But today I'm going to spin Lorena McKennett's equally evocative Bonnie Portmore, here from her album The Visit. Now, it's originally an Irish folk lament for that country's ravaged oak forests, in particular one tree, and it was used in the third Highlander movie, The Sorcerer, and the final one, Highlander Endgame. Other cover versions become something of a signature melody in the television series as well. So here we go. Bonnie Portmore from Lorena McKennett's album, The Visit. Hi, this is Fraser Hines. You're listening to Zero G on 3 Triple R FM. I played the companion to Patrick Troughton's second doctor, the Highlander, Jamie McCrimmon. And there can only be one. That's McCrimmon. Craig and Tour. Bonnie Portmore from Lorena McKennett's album, The Visit. It's featured in the Highlander movies. Plenty of headless ghosts in Highlander. And in that song too, associated with a long-running franchise. Yes, there are always rumours of a reboot of Highlander too. All right, well, that's more movies in the genre canon of Sean Connery, mostly focusing upon science fiction this time. Well, okay, Highlander 2 gets a bit of a pass as being fantasy as well, depending upon which version you discussed. Okay, so we have talked about Sean Connery's fantasy films, including his Arthurian films. We've done a few of his space films now. Next time, when we revisit the shores of Sean, we will probably look at films like Medicine Man and The Avengers. Most definitely not to be confused with the Marvel Cinematic Universe's The Avengers, and also The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, three more of Sean Connery's science fiction films. We'll also save some time somewhere down the track to look at his science fiction spy-fi movies, which include seven James Bond films, The Hunt for Red October, and his final film, which was an animated spy-fi film set in the Scottish Highlands. We'll also have a crack at his historical movies too, which I think contain some of his finest work overall. All right, so for an outtrack today, I was thinking, as usual, David Bowie and what sort of connections Bowie had with Sean Connery. And there are a couple of intersections along the way. One of the most interesting, I thought, was uh, could have been David Bowie reportedly was interested in playing the elf lord Elrond in Peter Jackson's magnificent Lord of the Rings saga. But uh, Peter Jackson couldn't quite get there. He thought maybe that um, Bowie's existing celebrity and fame would kind of cast the character of Elrond into darkness. But he did like the idea of Sean Connery playing Gandalf even though he himself had picked Ian McKellen for the role. The studio had other ideas, but they didn't quite get there. So there's a connection. Imagine Lord of the Rings with David Bowie as Elrond and Sean Connery playing Gandalf. 
It incidentally would have been another intersection where Connery could have played opposite Uma Thurman, who was tapped for playing Eowyn. Perhaps better if he'd encountered her there instead of playing opposite her in the Avengers movie where she was Emma Peel. Bowie had another potential connection with the Bond franchise too because he was going to play the villain Max Zorin in the Roger Moore Bond movie, A View to a Kill, but that didn't work out either. But I have found another connection between Connery and David Bowie, and that is to say singer and actress Dana Gillespie. Connery and Bowie were both lovers of hers, and she had also done some uh, backing vocals for Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars, and was later had an album produced by Bowie and Mick Ronson in 1973. The album is Weren't Born a Man, and there's a song on there called Andy Warhol. So Bowie wrote that originally for Gillespie, and this was released in 1973 on Weren't Born a Man. Well, that's about it for Zero G today. I'm flying solo this week, or perhaps it should be Indiana Jones. And next week, so will Megan, as she rolls out Zero G on International Women's Day. Thank you very much to our co-host, Megan McHugh, and to our podcaster, Kayla Larson, as well as to both our respective partners, and to Triple R for keeping Zero G platforming along in extraordinary circumstances during the pandemic. Joe Brunatic coming up next with Astral Glamour. Here we are with Dana Gillespie's Andy Warhol. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.